Tonight we're going to finish our uh, overview of the Abrahamic covenant. Who can tell me the three aspects of the oath that God made with Abraham, the covenant he made with Abraham? There were three promises that make that up. Descendants, land, and blessing. Who's the benefactor of the promise of many descendants and a great nation? Well, Abraham himself, right? I mean, he's, he's the benefactor. He's the father of many, many people. Um, what about the land? Who's the benefactor of the land? Israel, right? The people and the land go together. You read through the Old Testament, Israel, that's their land. That just They go together. And uh, the blessing, who's the benefactor of the blessing? Yeah, we are even. Isn't that cool? Very good. Um, well, <clears throat> remember that as we're going through this study, we're looking at uh, just prints through the Old Testament. I use that analogy of deer prints. You know, we're tracing the deer prints, and we're following that deer through <laughs> the Bible. And uh, when you get to the end of the deer prints, we don't expect a python, okay? We expect to see a deer, uh, because words have meaning, and we're following God's program and how He's laid it out. Now, there is this, uh, this aspect of different emphases in different testaments. Do you remember me talking about that last night? How you've got these three promises that make up the Abrahamic covenant, or last week, not last night. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, where were you guys last night? I was <laughs> preaching to an empty room. Uh, you, you've got the descendants, the land, and the blessing. But in the Old Testament, which two aspects do we see highlighted more? than the other one in the Old Testament. Which two are really at the forefront? Yeah, the descendants in the land. You've got the people Israel. You see them grow. They go down to Egypt, and they grow to a great mighty people. And when they leave Egypt, where are they headed? To their land, right? That's where they're going. That's what the book of Joshua is about. And, uh, <clears throat> and so you've got the people in the land emphasized. But then you get to the New Testament after the coming of Christ. Which aspect is really emphasized? Yeah, the blessing for sure, right? Um, that's what Galatians spends a lot of time about. Well, Paul in Galatians, especially in chapter 3. Um, but you see it in other places too, that the blessing has come even to the Gentiles. Okay? We are now grafted in to these promises of God, and it's an amazing thing. Uh, but we are going to see some other aspects too. And uh, just because certain aspects aren't emphasized, that doesn't mean that they're negated or anything like that. And uh, we'll see that tonight as we continue to look in Scripture about this covenant <clears throat> as it's been revealed. But let's all go to uh, Psalm 105, the 105th Psalm, which is um, essentially 1 Chronicles 16, just with a little bit of differentiation. We looked at 1 Chronicles 16 last week, but today I think we should look at Psalm 105, Verses 6 through 12. Who can read that for us? 105, 6 to 12. Thank you. Thank you. 
Okay. So we see here the covenant and the oath brought up. What kind of adjective is put in front of the word covenant there in verse 10? Yeah, everlasting or eternal, yours might say. So this covenant that God made with Abraham is everlasting. It doesn't have an end. There's no expiration date to it, all right? That's really important. In fact, when you look through the Bible, you can see uh, all the covenants of God are called everlasting or eternal, except for one. Can you think of which one might not be eternal? Which covenant has been replaced? Yeah, the old covenant is how the New Testament uh, titles it. But yeah, the old covenant has been replaced by the new covenant. The other covenants haven't been replaced by the new covenant, but they find their fulfillment through the new covenant. Okay, that's an important uh, distinction to maintain. But the old covenant, the, uh, we've been talking about this on Sunday mornings, haven't we, about the laws etched in stone. That was the ministry of the old covenant, and it's been fading away. And what has come will never fade away, the new covenant. So there's a replacement aspect with that one. But as we look at the passage of Psalm 105 here, 6 to 12, what aspects of this covenant are brought up by explicit declaration here? The covenant that God made with Abraham, what's being highlighted? Yeah, verse 11. To you I will give the land of Canaan. That's a specific land as the portion of your inheritance. So that aspect of the everlasting covenant is highlighted. Wow. So God made an everlasting promise within a covenant to a specific people about a specific land that has no expiration date. Okay? That's pretty amazing, pretty important. Thoughts or questions on this passage? Well, let's go to Jeremiah. I mentioned this passage as uh, I think I just mentioned the reference last week, but I want us to actually look, read it this week since we have a little more time. Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah chapter 32, and we'll go to the end, verse 36. And uh, we'll read that section, 32 to the end of the chapter. 32, starting at verse 36. Would someone read uh, those seven verses, eight verses or so? Jeremiah 32, 36 to the end of the chapter. Thank you.
Wow. What's being highlighted there? The land. I mean, it's pretty specific there, isn't it? Now, look at verse 41 with me again here. How is God going to plant them in the land? God says, with all my heart and with all my soul, He's going to plant them in that land again. How often do you see verses in the Bible where God talks about all His heart and all His soul? Can you think of anywhere else? I mean, I'm sure we could do a study and find some places, but it's not many, right? And probably don't have anything off the top of your head. This is pretty serious stuff. Now, someone give me a little bit of uh, historical background with the prophet Jeremiah. What was going on in Jeremiah's time? Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He didn't have a great time in his ministry. <laughs> well, why not? What was going on? So, you, yeah, you've got the, ba- the Babylonian captivity and the exile, right? Um, you actually have some specifics that are predicted about this exile that's going to last how many years? Do you guys remember? Seventy. Seventy, yeah. Egypt was 400, Babylon... Babylon was 70. And this is, of course, the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was already taken care of by Assyria a couple hundred years before. And so now you've got the Babylonians taking the southern kingdom, and it's going to be a 70-year captivity. And so even though Jeremiah is just it really a struggle ministry is what this is, because no one's going to listen to him. I mean, you read through there, and he's just weeping. And he's not having fleshly success. But even so, he delivers this promise to Israel that they will be returning. They won't always be in exile. God's going to gather people from all these lands, you see in verse 37, out of all the lands to which I have driven them, and he did so in his anger, in his wrath, and in great indignation, the New American Standard Bible says. But they're going to be brought back to this place, a specific land, it says in 37, and God will make them dwell in safety. That's what's going to happen. And you see, too, that he promises that he's going to make another covenant. Verse 40, it's another covenant. And what's the adjective in front of that covenant? Verse 40, another everlasting covenant. And this is the new covenant. Okay, that's the only covenant that's left on the timeline here. He's going to make this new covenant with Israel. And it's going to be when they're in the land. Part of bringing them back into the land and restoring them is Israel coming into this new covenant. So that whole event of being restored in the land is an aspect of the new covenant being fulfilled, as Jeremiah describes it not just here in 32, but in chapter 31 and chapter 33, it's explained also. Okay? So this is going to be a major event in Israel uh, that has not happened yet. Now, some people say this has happened. Knowing where we are on the timeline, as we were just talking about it, where, where do you think they would place this fulfillment at in history? Because you know where Jeremiah was. So, what were you saying? Was that you, Mandy? Oh, someone's saying something. No, not 70 AD, because 70 AD is Jerusalem's destroyed. So this would be the rebuilding, not the destruction. What, what books of the Bible were written after Jeremiah? There we go, Ezra and Nehemiah. And what's going on in Ezra and Nehemiah? 
they're back from Babylonian exile and they're rebuilding. And so some people look at that and say, well, see, that's where it was fulfilled was because they did come back, didn't they? And so God made good on this promise and they were brought back. Now, can you poke some holes in that interpretation? <laughs> okay, well, we got like three answers at once. Okay, so Jim said part of the promise here is that they dwell in safety, right? That, did that happen when they returned? No, Israel's basically been the target of the world their whole existence. Mandy, what were you saying? It didn't last. Good. Yeah, they were wiped out, as Rex mentioned, 70 AD. Jerusalem's destroyed. You got the Romans coming in and setting up their empire. Um, and it wasn't until very recently, in some of our lifetimes, that they received statehood again, right? So that's been really recent because everyone in here is just a baby. Melissa, what were you saying? Yes. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, God says that this restoration to the land, which it's not just here in Jeremiah 32, right? You've got Deuteronomy 4, when Moses says, in the latter days you'll return to this land, and other prophets are saying it too. But it's going to be an amazing thing. In fact, we looked last week at Jeremiah 23, where God says that this restoration is going to be so big and so massive that no longer will people say, the God who lives, who delivered Israel out of Egypt, but they will say the God of Israel who brought them back from all the places they were scattered and brought them back to their land. That's a pretty massive event. If it's, got, if it's overshadowing Exodus and the parting of the Red Sea and the plagues and all that business, that means it's got to be pretty significant. Well, there's a, uh, a document that I have here, and I could make copies for you guys if you want, um, if you're interested. Eight reasons why Israel's restoration was not fulfilled after the exile. This is put together by Matthew Waymeyer. And uh, number one, it's in the restoration, as it's been prophesied, the ten tribes of the north are going to be reunited with the two tribes of the south. However, in the return from the exile, this did not take place. In fact, there were some Israelites who refused to go back. You remember that? Number two, in the restoration, there will be spiritual renewal and wholehearted obedience to the Lord among the Israelites. And he gives verses for all this. But in the return from the exile, the nation of Israel was still practicing many sins, such as intermarriage. Remember that in Ezra? They were still intermarried. Non-prescribed offerings, withholding tithes, immoral priests, etc. Number three, in the restoration, the significance of God's work in Israel will overshadow His work in their exodus out of Egypt. But in the return from the exile, this was certainly not the case. Number four, in the restoration, the Jews will return to the land in a number equal to or greater than before they went into Babylonian exile. That's in Zechariah 10. That's where it says that. But in the return from the exile, the nation was shockingly small. <laughs> Number five, in the restoration, the Lord will destroy the nations to which He has scattered the Jews. That's promised in Jeremiah 30. But in the return from the exile, this did not happen. In the restoration, God will vindicate His name among the nations. In the return from the exile, this did not happen. Number seven, the post exile prophet Zechariah still spoke of a future return of national Israel. Zechariah was after that, and he says they're going to return. And then finally, in the restoration, Israel returns to the land as a part of the new covenant. The new covenant could not have been fulfilled before the time of Christ. Another big factor, right? And we pointed out that adjective, everlasting. It's an everlasting covenant. When does an everlasting covenant expire? Never. So, they are going to be brought back. They, they have ownership of that land forever, and they'll be brought back to that land, okay? 
Thoughts or questions on Jeremiah and that prophecy that's flowing from the Abrahamic covenant? They would be Reformed theologians. That's Reformed theology. That's Reformed theology. Now, a lot of people mean a lot of different things when they say Reformed theology. Some people will say Reformed theology and they mean a three-point Calvinist. And uh, that's like the bare minimum of what anybody could ever mean by Reformed theology. But there are like these levels that you go up, you know, four-point Calvinist, five-point Calvinist. Then you go five-point Calvinist who believes in covenant theology. A five-point Calvinist who believes in covenant theology who also uh, believes in paedo-baptism and sprinkles babies. And he just kind of goes from there. And each level up looks down at the other levels and says they're not really reformed. That's kind of how that works. And so we don't have a chance of being uh, <laughs> reformed by most people, uh, but... Um, but that's kind of how that works. So it's, you can either call it Reformed theology or Covenant theology would teach that. Yeah. Okay. Other thoughts or questions on that? Well, yeah, well, and uh, especially like if you were living at that time, say you were living in Ezra's time where there was still sin and not all the Israelites came back and it was just kind of still a mess. And uh, someone said, hey, this is the fulfillment of all those grand promises. You're looking around saying, oh, really? Okay, well, that's rough, okay? I think, uh, you know, when God fulfills His promises, they're usually grander than we think they will be, not way less than, okay? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, pretty amazing stuff. Pretty amazing stuff. Other thoughts or questions on this point? Okay. Last week, I don't know if we looked at both Ezekiel passages or not. I, there's Ezekiel in my notes, Ezekiel 20 and Ezekiel 36. I think maybe we skipped 36. Oh, did we skip 20? Okay, let's go to 20. Thank you, Sandra. Ezekiel 20, and let's go to verse 33. Verses 33 to 30, 38. Ezekiel 20, 33 to 38. Would someone read that for us? Okay, go ahead, Rex. 33 to, what? to 38. <laughs> okay. Wait, where did you start? What verse did you start in? Oh, no, start in 33. We were all like, what translation does Rex have? <laughs> Are you translating your own Hebrew on the fly over there? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, give us more context for 38. <laughs> I will bring you from the nations 
for you have been scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with outpoured wrath. I will bring you into the desert of the nations, and there, face to face, I will execute judgment upon you. As I judge your fathers in the desert of the land of Egypt, so I will judge you before the sovereign Lord. I will take note of you as you pass under my rod, and I will bring you into the bond of my covenant. I will purge you of those who will go and rebel against me, although I will bring them out of the land where they are living, yet they will not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. All right. <laughs> oh yeah numbers are tiny yeah so you have here god of course again making the promise that they will be gathered back and there's emphasis here on the judgment we looked at that a little bit last week with uh, zechariah 13 where remember two-thirds are going to be judged harshly and cut off and one-third will be the remnant that is refined and here it says again he's going to judge them but notice, too, in verse 37, God says, as they pass under the rod, this remnant of Israel, He's going to bring them into the bond of the covenant. And so here we're looking forward to a new covenant once again. And it's all blossoming out of that initial promise to Abraham, where this is their land, they are a people because of that promise made to Abraham, and they have a land because of that promise made to Abraham, and there is going to be this restoration taking place in the new covenant with Israel sometime in the future. And of course, this hasn't happened yet. Okay. Thoughts or questions on this passage? They're all pretty straightforward, aren't they? They're only complicated if you make them complicated. Because if you want to say that this isn't really talking about national Israel and it's not really talking about a physical land, then we have lots of questions. But if you say God communicates clearly, He means what He says, pretty well spells it out, doesn't it? Verse 38. Let's see, I've got a number one on that in my Bible, which says literally ground or soil. Okay, so they will not dwell on the soil, they will not enter the soil of Israel. Um, well, it says at the beginning of verse 38, I will purge you from the, from the rebels and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. So, yes. Yes. No, I would say that's, well, it could be. I'd, ha I'd have to study that more. It could be. When I first read it just now, I was thinking they're enemies. But that could very well be yeah, rebels within Israel. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, could very well be. Yep. Ooh, Joel 3. Go to Joel chapter 3. Joel. We kind of have to read the whole chapter, so I'll read this. There's just a lot here. But Joel 3 is just another one of those things that if we're saying that this has already happened or already been fulfilled, what on earth does this mean? I just don't know how you interpret this any other way. But Joel 3, just starting at the first verse, 
<laughs> look, at, look at the first verse. Says, Behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre, Sidon, and the regions of Philistia? Are you rendering me a recompense? But if you do recompense me, swiftly and speedily I will return your recompense on your head. Since you have taken my silver and my gold, brought my precious treasures to your temples, and sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their territory, behold, I am going to arouse them from the place where you have sold them and return your recompense on your head. Also, I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the sons of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a distant nation. The Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords. See a reversal from Isaiah 2 here. And your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for His people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. And in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a waste, and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah, in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem for all generations and I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So that'll be an awesome day, huh? And obviously here the, uh, the emphasis is on the nations. That's where they're going to be gathered and judged. Uh, the two-thirds of Israel that will be cut off, will they be there or will they be some, somewhere else? I think that Zechariah 13 passage is the closest that we'll get to where they will be. And if, I don't know if it does tell us the exact location, but that is going to be the supreme place of judgment is the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which we don't know where that is. Yeah, there's no place to point to on the map, but it's the Valley of Decision that God will designate in that day. Pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, could be. Thoughts or questions?
Well, what we were just reading in Joel 3 has to do with God's ultimate day of judgment, where he's gathering his soldiers and all the nations are gathered. He says nations, plural, okay? So now the question is, does that include the rebellious, transgressing Israelites who are not going to be saved? We don't know. Uh, I, I don't know if there's any way to answer that definitively. But somewhere along the way, two-thirds of Israel is going to be cut off according to Zechariah 13. And one-third will be brought through their fire, refined, and entered into a new covenant with God. Okay. Well, are we ready to go to the New Testament? I've got four New Testament texts. That sound like a plan? Okay, let's go to uh, Luke chapter 1. Luke 1 is a big chapter, and we'll be toward the end of Luke chapter 1. There's, there's another passage I want to show you at some point, if we have time. Have you guys ever read Ezekiel 39? That, that's wild. There's, well, there's wild stuff going on in Ezekiel, but Ezekiel 39 is crazy. I kind of want to show you that before we leave, just to freak you out a little bit. But let's go um, Luke 1, 67, verse 67, uh, Zacharias's prophecy. And you'll notice 67 starts with his father, Zacharias. Who, who are we talking about here? What... Uh, what baby and what's going on? No, not Jeremiah. John the Baptist. Yep, John the Baptist. And, and notice what's going on with Zechariah in verse 67. He is filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesying. Okay, that's important to note. So this is a Holy Spirit-led prophecy. Would someone read verses 68 to 75? Okay, go ahead, Andy. Okay, so we don't get a, a ton of detail about the Abrahamic covenant here, obviously, because that's not the point. That's not Zacharias's point. He's mentioning, mentioning that along the way, but his point is to praise God. Uh, he's praising God for this baby, for this child, and the role that he's going to play uh, in God's program. But notice what he does say about the Abrahamic covenant. He talks about the covenant at the end of 72, he mentions Abraham by name in 73, the oath he swore to Abraham our father. And in 74, he talks about this aspect of being rescued from the hand of our enemies. And that sounds like the prophecies we've been reading tonight, doesn't it? That God is going to bring them out of the lands where they were scattered, and he's going to deal with those nations. He's going to judge those other nations. They will be confronted. That we might serve him without fear, Zechariah says. And so even though the land isn't mentioned here specifically, uh, we know, of course, that that's an element in all these prophecies that he's basing this statement on, right? 
And so what we're doing is just tracing the Abrahamic covenant into the New Testament, and I think this is uh, the first place that we see an explicit mention of the Abrahamic covenant in the New Testament. Now, the first place we see uh, a mention of Abraham in the New Testament is the very first verse of the New Testament in Matthew 1.1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, but this is where we have this explicit reference to the covenant, All right? Well, let's uh, keep going and uh, head to Acts, Acts chapter 1. <clears throat> I've got, like I said, four passages for us to look at as we get into the New Testament. Though this, here in Acts, I want us to see one verse in Acts 1 and then another passage in Acts 3. But in Acts 1, you've got the ascension of Jesus getting ready to take place. And this conversation that Jesus has with Peter or his disciples as a whole. We always, anytime it just says like disciples, we think, well, Peter's probably talking, right? Because uh, Peter's a talker. And we have in verse 6, Peter or one of the other disciples <laughs> asking, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, this is just a fascinating question. Because what have the disciples been doing for the last 40 days? With, who have they been with? No, they've been with Jesus. Okay, so this is before really persecution starts. And what, what do you think they're doing with Jesus? Just playing video games? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they learned so much about the glorified body. I've not really thought about that before. You know, we just get those little glimpses at the end of the Gospels. And they got to be with the, the glorified Jesus for 40 days, 40 nights. He didn't have to sleep, but I wonder if he did. Okay, I need to not think about that right now. But, uh, but you have them with Jesus for 40 days. He had been teaching them for three years leading up to this point. Now they have 40 days, and they are still expecting a restored kingdom to Israel. Now, you've got two options here. You can say they're expecting a restored kingdom to Israel because they're really, really stupid. I mean, this is like next-level dumb. You've got to have like brain falling out of your head, dumb, or that God's actually going to restore the kingdom of Israel. Those are your two, those are your only two options. <laughs> There's no other direction to go here. Those are your only two options. And I don't think they're that stupid. Now, of course, this is before Pentecost. It's before the Holy Spirit comes and empowers Peter to preach. That happens in the next chapter. Uh, but there's something significant that happens then, too, that we'll look at. But sheesh, I mean, if Jesus was revealing to them what the Father has, is up to, what His plan is, and they're missing it this badly after 40 days with the glorified Christ, saying, is now the time you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? You would think Jesus would say, you still don't get it. I am so done. See ya. And then He leaves, right? And that would be it. But instead, look how He replies, verse 7, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority. He doesn't say, you're wrong. He doesn't say, hey, you're looking at this from the wrong perspective, you need to think about it this way. His, really, His answer, in a way, is affirming the question itself. He's not denying any of the, the substance. He's just saying, you're not going to know the timing. But He's not denying the heart of the question. And I think that's pretty significant. And Peter carries this thinking into his preaching. So turn to chapter 3, Acts chapter 3. You have Peter preaching to 
fellow Jews, and this thinking about restoring the kingdom is still in his mind. In Acts chapter 3, we could go, starting in verse 17, that'd probably be good, 17 to the end of the chapter, Acts 3, 17 to 26. Who's got that? It's 10 verses. Yes, thank you. All right, so you have themes here in the New Testament preaching that draw on not just one covenant at a time, but I think a lot of the preaching and the content of the New Testament as it regards Israel has to do with all the covenants. Like, the question, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That obviously has some foundation in the Davidic covenant that Tyler's going to start on next week. The promise that God made to David that he will have a kingdom, a perpetual forever kingdom. I mean, that's a huge promise. Okay. Well, here we have themes. I mean, even Peter himself says in verse 24, from Samuel and everybody else, they're talking about this. Okay. And he talks about the promise that was made to Abraham, the covenant that was made to Abraham in verse 25, specifically the blessing aspect. In your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. But Peter here has, has come to the point of re- realizing what's going on because Jesus has now come, he's died, he's resurrected, he's ascended. And Peter now knows that central to God's fulfillment of these promises is the person of Jesus Christ. Peter now realizes, Jews, it, you have to come to Jesus in order to enjoy the blessing of God. You have to place your faith in Jesus Christ and what He has done in order to receive the blessings from God. Peter knows that these promises that God has made throughout the Old Testament aren't going to be fulfilled apart from their turning to Jesus Christ. That is central to the whole thing. But notice in verse 19 that Peter puts their minds on repentance, repent and return, so that, here's the purpose, not only would their sins be wiped away, but times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And, verse 21, that there would be a period of restoration. And how do we find out about this period of restoration? Peter says it's all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from ancient time. So these Old Testament prophecies about Israel's restoration, they will come about when Israel repents and returns. That is 
clearly Peter's view here. That's how he's preaching this. And the, the covenant made to Abraham isn't forgotten. The covenant made to Abraham will find its total fruition when Israel as a nation is unified to their Messiah. Okay. Thoughts on that amazing passage? Yeah, it's a really, really bad way of thinking about that, yeah. Mm -hmm. Jesus is totally central for all people. Yeah, yeah. and there's actually a, a pastor I know, uh, an older guy, he actually is retired now, but he made a point, you know, you never say that Jesus is the Gentiles' Messiah, he's Israel's Messiah, and he's the world's Savior. He was really particular about that. I don't know how I feel about it, but I, now I can't say that phrase because I'll think about what he said and thought, well, maybe he's right. You know? <laughs> so, it's funny how people you know, put those pebbles in your shoe, so to speak. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It's like a Venn diagram. Yeah. yeah. I want to point this out to you. Verse 25, even though they're not saved, because he's calling them to repent and return and be saved, even though they're not saved, what, what does he call them in verse 25, these Jews, these unbelieving Jews? Heirs, good. Any other translations? Okay. Sons of the prophets. And, and of the covenant which God made with your fathers. And the fathers generally are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who's in view there. So even though they're not believers in Jesus Christ, even after the start of the church in Acts chapter 2, these unbelieving Jews are still called sons of the covenant. Wow. So do you think the church supersedes Israel and takes their promise away from them? No. Even unbelieving Israel are still sons of the covenant. Because God made a promise to Abraham, who's the father of Israel. Okay. Yeah. Yep, and he will. Romans 9, let's go to Romans 9, the start of Romans 9. There's so much we could look at in Romans 9 through 11, but there's just one thing I want to point out at the start of Romans 9. Verses 3 to 5. So on that same theme of, look how Peter is talking about unbelieving Israel. Now we'll say, look how Paul is talking about unbelieving Israel. Someone want to read Romans 9, 3 to 5? Melissa, go ahead.
The reason why Paul is mentioning them is there at the start of verse 3, that he wishes he could basically be the substitution for them, that he could be cut off, that they would turn and believe in his generation. And he says at the beginning of verse 4, quite clearly, they are Israelites. He says they're his kinsmen according to the flesh. We're talking about unbelieving Jews. And he says, to whom belongs, present tense, to Jacob's descendants, they're the ones to whom belongs adoption, glory, covenants, the law, temple service, promises, and the fathers. That's pretty startling, isn't it? To them belong all these things. Now, for them to enjoy it, there has to be faith. There absolutely has to be faith. Kind of like how I uh, use the illustration of the uh, Abrahamic covenant is like the deed for the land where God unconditionally said, this land is yours, this land of Canaan. They own it. But the Mosaic covenant comes along, and that's their certificate of occupancy. You've got to keep the law in order to be able to live in the land. God's got to, he's making sure you're holy before you can be in the land. But that doesn't change the fact that they own it. Okay, they still own the land even when they're not there. And so with all these things that Paul lists, to them belong all these things. But they're not going to enjoy it unless they have faith. That, of course, is the great condition here, isn't it? They have to repent and return, as Peter implored them to do, and be joined to God through faith in Jesus. Thoughts or questions on that? One more New Testament passage, Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6, we'll talk about Abraham specifically. Verses 13 to 18, Hebrews 6, 13 to 18. Pretty amazing passage. Who would like to read those verses? Hebrews 6, 13 to 18. Thank you. Okay. And verse 19 is good too. This, this hope we have as an anchor for the soul. Isn't that good? All right, so we have, starting in verse 13, this flashback, God making a promise to Abraham. And why did he swear by himself? This is maybe the strongest passage on monotheism in the Bible, isn't it? There's no other God. There's no one else he could swear by. He's the highest. And certainly that blows the Mormon view out of the water that God's got a God and that God has a God and that God has a God. There's no one higher than our God. That's quite remarkable. And uh, surely I will bless you and multiply you, verse 14, hearkening back to the promise. 
Uh, that's the Abrahamic covenant, the promises contained within covenant to Abraham. And in verse 17, it tells us why God uh, made the covenant with Abraham, why he entered into a covenant. Why, why does it, uh, in verse 17, why did God enter into this covenant? What was he desiring? Okay. Yeah, it's a kind of a mouthful of words there, but, you know, we talked about why does God enter into covenants at all? God can just say it and it is, right? Who is, you know, who, who is God that he would have to swear or make an oath? Well, I mean, he's God and he doesn't have to do that. But he does that in order to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, to show to people who are sharing in this covenant, who have entered into relationship with him in covenant, that he doesn't change, that he means what he says, that he's going to be faithful to do what he says. And that's not just for Israel. We are in view here, too, of course, because we are Abraham's children by faith, aren't we, Galatians says. We are children of Abraham, and so we are heirs of the promise. We receive the blessing from God, and we can attest to the unchangeableness of God's purpose, interposed with an oath even. So it's really scary when people start going in and wanting to change what God has said, because the whole purpose of Him making a covenant is to show His unchangeableness, isn't it? <laughs> so you got to really think about what you're doing when you're interpreting the Bible, you don't want to change His purpose because that's central to the whole covenant-making process. And again, we have an emphasis on the blessing here, where it says back in verse 14, not only that God would multiply Abraham, but there would be a blessing that would come through this promise. And because we are heirs of the, uh, heirs of the promise, we know this is talking about the blessing aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. But that's not negating the rest of what was promised. It's just highlighting those portions, okay? Thoughts or questions on Hebrews 6? Yeah, that's a really interesting... Yeah. So I read F.F. Bruce today on Hebrews, and he said that the two... Uh, the two um, unchangeable things. That's how the New American Standard renders it. Unchangeable things. The, uh, the two of them is uh, His promise and His covenant, is what He said. Basically what you just said. That He said He would do it and He made a covenant. And that, that seems like that's what the text is saying. Um, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. And, I mean, in, it's emphasized there in verse 18 as it goes on where it says it is impossible for God to lie. So there's an emphasis on the words that God is saying. It's impossible for God to lie. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we have we have priest. <laughs> we don't have priests, we have priest. <laughs> Yes, and capital P. Yeah. Can I spook you with Ezekiel 39? I was wanting to leave enough time for this. Ezekiel 39, let's go there real quick. 
Just as we're talking about all this end time stuff here, I read this recently and uh, I just think this is <laughs> an amazing thing. Ezekiel 39 verses 11 to 16. Someone read 11 to 16. Tyler, how about you read those? Ezekiel 39, 11 to 16. That's good. Um, now, this isn't necessarily something I plan on talking about tonight. It just came to my mind, and I thought I just want to show you this. Uh, it does have, talk about the land, okay? Over and over again, it's mentioning the land. That's the same land we've been talking about. But you see what's going on here is that Gog is going to have a burial ground in Israel. Defining Gog is difficult. Gog and uh, Magog comes up in Revelation also, and defining it's difficult, kind of like defining Babylon in Revelation. Uh, because if Revelation was to get kick-started today, the events of Revelation, well, who's Babylon? Okay, that's kind of tough to figure out. But for now, we can just say Gog being Israel's enemies, okay, they're going to be buried in Israel. And it's going to be a seven-month period. You've got all these bodies everywhere <laughs> that are going to be buried. Yeah, stinky. And they're doing this search and... Uh, if anyone sees a man's bone, verse 15, he's going to set up a marker by it until the barriers come by and bury. So people are designated to be barriers, and the non-barriers, if they see a bone, they put a little flag there, and the barriers come by, and they bury it. And I'm just showing you this, not only because I think it's cool, but also because um, for those who deny a future for Israel, you got to do one of two things with this passage. you got to say, this happened already, literally. Don't know when that would have been. Or you have to say this is metaphorically something that is taking place in the church. Yeah, and I don't know what you would say that would do justice to this. So then there are lots of passages like that where God talks about the end and what He's going to do with Israel, and it's like, well, He means what He says. That's where I'm going to land. And if I'm wrong, I'll be wrong because I'm seeking to just believe what He says and not trying to look for a hidden meaning. Anyway, so that's just another event that's going to happen in the land sometime in the future. Ezekiel's a wild ride <laughs> from the very beginning of Ezekiel. <laughs> oh. Okay. Well, any final thoughts or questions on the Abrahamic covenant? Yes. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yep, it's serious business uh, for God because He doesn't make covenants willy-nilly. Not, not every promise of God is a covenant. He says lots of things, makes lots of promises, says what's going to happen. But when He makes a covenant, there's like a special emphasis there, like Hebrews was saying. He's putting on display the unchangeableness of His purpose. Yeah, yeah it's like double emphasis. Yeah. Well, this brings us to the end of our overview of the Abrahamic covenant. Like I mentioned, next week, Tyler's going to start us off on the Davidic covenant. That'll be an 18-week study. Uh, there's a lot to see about that too. And then after that, we'll, um, Tyler and I will both be teaching on the new covenant. Because again, the new covenant uh, only replaces the old covenant. The new covenant doesn't replace the Abrahamic or the Davidic or the Noahic or the uh, priestly covenant that God made with Phineas. It doesn't replace any of those. Those are all everlasting. And so uh, what the new covenant does is gives the vehicle for the fulfillment uh, into eternity future of these promises, okay? And we'll look at that. I'll pray, and then we'll go see how much snow we have. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Oh, good, good, good. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and for our time together in it. We thank you that you have spoken to us in a way that we can understand by the mouth of your holy prophets. Help us to understand more and more about your purpose for the world, the program, that you have for all of human history as you're bringing glory to yourself through different covenants and just through many different events. Help us to rest upon the foundation of your word, that we wouldn't question what you've said, that we wouldn't uh, try to discover something that's not there, that we wouldn't put the wrong emphasis in the wrong place, but that we would heed your word and be led by your spirit through our study to uh, just think rightly about about what you're doing. God, we thank you that you've brought us to the place where we've entered into relationship with you through Jesus Christ, that you saved us and caused us to be born again to a living hope. Help us to focus on him more and more, that we would see the gospel as touching every part of our lives and that we'd be faithful witnesses for you in a lost and dying world. God, help us to serve you well as your church in this age and however much uh, you have left for us to do. Help us to do it well for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.